morning. It's been encouraging the uh, past few weeks since the quarantine and the slowdown to have special phone conversations and Skype and Zoom meetings and such with you all and to hear how you are responding to this situation with faith and encouragement and zeal, and I would encourage you to excel still more. I think we have an opportunity during this special time to be the body and to really, in different ways, go deep with each other. Uh, So it is great to meet with you in this way, and let's go to the warden prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, be with us this morning as we come to your word. During this time, I pray that you would strengthen us. Lord, we admit that we need your help to grow in our love for Jesus Christ, to lean on you, to have strong faith, one that reflects how we treasure you. And we also need your help to value Christ above all that we value. And so, Lord, we express that neediness to you this morning and ask that, that you grow us, use your word to strengthen us in our love for Christ. Amen. I think you're all probably familiar with Corey Ten Boom and her story. During World War II, she and her family hid Jews in their home and were caught by the Nazis. Later on, they were sent to Nazi concentration camps, and of her immediate family, she was the only one who survived. But it's really her sister Betsy who endured this trial as a pillar of faith. In her best-selling autobiography, The Hiding Place, Corey writes, I hated the dismal place full of sick and suffering women. She was speaking about this so-called medical clinic in the concentration camp. She says, but we had to go back again for Betsy's condition was growing worse. Betsy was not repelled by the room as I was. To her, it was simply a setting in which to talk about Jesus, as indeed was every place else. Wherever she was, at work, in the food line, in the dormitory, Betsy spoke to those around her about his nearness and his yearning to come into their lives. As her body grew weaker, her faith seemed to grow bolder. And sick call was, as Betsy put it, such an important place, Corey. Some of these people are at the very threshold of heaven. How is that possible for this lady to be, in a, to, to be dying in a concentration camp without her family around her, really? And to have this kind of perspective. You see, Betsy knew the Lord. That's how. He was her refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And so the Nazis could give her their worse, and it didn't faze her. She understood that in light of God's sovereignty, she was, she was exactly where he would have her. And so she was free then to seek first his kingdom, even in a concentration camp. Now, our text this morning, Psalm 46, talks to us about worst-case scenarios of nature and nations, which we're typically not experiencing. Maybe we will, but typically we're not. But the application here, I think, is really one from the greater to the lesser. If God is our refuge and strength in the major catastrophes of, of life, then surely He is our refuge and strength during lesser times of difficulty and everything in between. And so I think our text 
is really a word of comfort. I think it's a word of encouragement. Brothers and sisters, God has our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So when we're afraid, when we face fears on every side, big and small, he is our refuge and strength. And we need to run to him first before we run anywhere else. When we see, for example, cake bakers losing their jobs specifically because they're Christians, we need to trust his control over the nations, over people. When we read about global warming and life-threatening hurricanes and earthquakes and coronaviruses and job layoffs associated with that, we need to place our confidence in him. But our text is also a word of chastisement for those who seek false refuges. God alone is our refuge and strength, not people, places, or things. And so this is a call to spend more time contemplating our God's character rather than worrying about things that that are beyond our control. We need to find our refuge and strength in Him, not in good grades and worldly success. We need to find our refuge and strength in Him, not in happy marriages or job security, big bank accounts, good kids, even good health. God alone is our refuge and strength. And we need a big view of God, the big view of God that we see presented in Psalm 46. We need to embrace the truths of this text, and we need to own them. I think we could say the main point of this text is this, God is our refuge and strength, therefore, we should have no fear and should rest in his eternal presence as we hope in and long for the day of Christ's return and ultimate exaltation. As we look at Psalm 46, we can see that this text is divided into three main parts. And so this morning, we're going to essentially be looking at three reasons why God is our refuge and strength, and we're going to do this to his glory and our exceeding joy. And so first we see here in verses 1 through 3 that God is our refuge and strength because he is in control of nature, and so we should have no fear of natural disasters. When we look at the superscript, uh, we see it doesn't give us much information as to the specific occasion of this psalm, but we do learn here that it's a song. And we could say that singing typically requires more energy from us, maybe more passion, maybe more zeal. And so I believe this song is to be passionately owned. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. God is our place of refuge. He is who and where we turn to for assistance or security. He is our source of inner strength. He is our power. He is the well from which we draw from when we need physical, mental, or, or spiritual stamina. And notice that he's not a refuge or some impersonal strength, but he is our refuge and strength. In Hebrew, it says, Elohim is to us a refuge. The pronoun is possessive. The us refers to God's people. Uh, The original audience was the true Jews of Israel, but it applies to to all who are God's people. God is not the refuge of strength of all men, but only those who are his. And so uh, there is a, a subtle evangelistic flavor here. If you're not God's people, then this is encouragement 
to rectify that. And we know that this takes place only in and through faith in Jesus Christ, be those who hope in the promises of God. John Frame writes, God's special presence with the righteous is his blessing on them that entails his special providences in their earthly lives and his gift of eternal life. Therefore, to the righteous, God is a very present help in trouble. The only way in which human beings can be righteous, of course, is through the grace of Jesus Christ. Those who are in Christ can never be separated from God's love. Romans 8, 38 and 39. You see, this refuge and strength is particular to God's people. And so we see the text assumes the gospel. It assumes that the readers are those who have placed their hope and their confidence in the promises of God. They are God's chosen people. They are the redeemed. Other people might have various refuges and strengths. Uh, they're inferior, and we would call them false or inadequate refuges. But for God's people, there is only one source of strength, and that is our God. He alone is our refuge. He alone is our strength, and we're privileged to say that he is ours. And he is our very present help in trouble. He's our help. He's our support, our assistance in times of distress, which further defines how he is our refuge and strength. He's also an ever-present help. That phrase, ever-present, has its root in the verb to be found. In Hebrew, it means something like a help that can be found when you need it. It speaks of God's nearness as we see highlighted in various places throughout Scripture. But, for example, in Deuteronomy 4-7, one of Moses' sermons to the people of God, where he says, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? See, God is near and he's readily available to his people. He's easy to be found. You don't have to go searching for him on some mountaintop or hope that, that somehow he, he, he might show up when you need him. It's so offensive then to pray, as many people do, that God might show up at their meeting. Really? If it's a gathering of God's people, he's already there. He is already with them for their good. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. In our distress, our God is one who is near. Therefore, because of this reality... We will not fear. Obviously so. Because of this particular aspect of God's character, his nearness to his people for their good, we'll not fear. We'll not be afraid or feel anxious about the situation or the event that faces us. See, this is a declaration of great confidence. We will not fear. The ethos is we shall not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the earth shakes and though the mountains be moved in the heart of the sea. The experience of earthquakes was not unfamiliar to the ancient Israelites. See, even when the ground beneath our feet gives way and slides into the middle of the ocean, and so it essentially disappears right out from underneath us, even then we will not fear. And will not fear even though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. We could say, though, the waters rage like we see if you look down a little further in verse 6. 
Even if there was another cataclysmic flood like the one in Noah's day, a complete decreation, even if the end has come as we believe that this text is clearly pointing to, even then we'll not fear. Why? Because God is our refuge and strength. He is near. He is with us for our good. Selah. We learned that Selah could indicate a break for an instrument solo. It might be introducing a change in pitch. Or it could be simply a call to pause and reflect on what has just been sung. I don't think we know exactly what Selah means, but I prefer that latter idea of pause. What has just been sung is absolutely profound. Pause, let it sink in. Derek Kidner summarizes this first section and says, our true security is in God. Not in God plus anything else. He says, God's nearness and willingness to help us, this ever-present source of aid is enough for any possible natural disaster, even if the oceans rage to the point of causing the mountains to move. Pause. Let this truth sink in. But you see, though, mere physical survival is not the end hope here. It's not the end game of this text. If the earth gives way and the mountain moves, moves into the heart of the ocean, then we're all physically dead. If that is to happen, we're done for. The Indian Ocean tsunami of 2004 killed nearly 300,000 people almost instantly. Shortly after that disaster, there was this rumor floating around that, that Christians in the Muslim town of Mulabah, Indonesia, were miraculously spared. But the stories coming out of Mulabah of this miraculous rescue of Christians couldn't be confirmed. It was only a story. The facts are that many Christians did indeed die from that tsunami. The hope of God's people here in Psalm 46 is not physical deliverance. This is a declaration of trust or confidence in the reality that Paul was proclaiming in Romans 8, 28, and 29, that God works all things for good for those who love him. God's people can trust that every natural disaster is working for their redemptive good. God is using all things to conform them into an image of his son. Whether they live or whether they die, he is with them for their redemptive good. That's the point. And so in and through every natural disaster, God's people run to him for refuge and strength. He is their very present help in trouble. Therefore, they don't fear the storm. They don't fear the flood. And as we see this text pointing to the end of all things, they don't even fear that. God is always with them for their good. When God is our refuge and strength, we're going to know and understand that wherever we are on this planet, we are secure. Wherever we are, in whatever situation, we are safe. I met a guy a few years back who moved to Powell, Wyoming, because he studied and studied, and, and he finally discerned that Powell, Wyoming just so happened to be the safest place in all the United States. Did you know that? Maybe even in the entire world. This guy was an engineer. He had his spreadsheets. You can picture it. And this particular discovery controlled his life. It dictated where he would live. Brothers and sisters, Powell, Wyoming is not our refuge and strength. It might be a great place to live, but it's not our refuge and strength. 
our God and our God alone is our refuge and strength. Therefore, we'll not fear the worst natural disaster. Our fate is firmly secure in our God's hands. And then second, we learn here that God is our refuge and strength because he is in control of the nations. And so we should seek his protection when the nations threaten. Verses 4 through 7. The oceans may rage and even move our dependable mountains, but those connected to God are secure. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. So in contrast to the raging oceans, there is a quiet stream giving life to God's people, to those who find refuge in him. In Genesis 2.10, we learned that a river flowed out of the Garden of Eden and gave life to all its surroundings. In Ezekiel 47, we learn of a great river flowing out of the temple in the New Jerusalem that will sweeten the Dead Sea, right? It will give life to the Dead Sea. Both of these rivers highlight God's special presence with his people for life, not death. These waters were were gentle, and they were life-giving, and they make glad the city of God, which we know as Jerusalem, the holy habitation of the Most High. And it points to the life-giving waters of the new Jerusalem that we read about in Revelation 22, and the messianic hope associated with that. And so we see that this text brings us back to God's work in the past, how that applies in the present, and how to apply in the future, in and through the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God is in the midst of Jerusalem. She shall not be moved, or we could say shaken. Language again taking us back to verses 1 through 3. And God will help her when morning dawns. That is, God will, God's help is going to be immediate at first light. You're not going to have to wait around for his nearness and for his help and deliverance. The main point here is that God's people are protected in God's city, Jerusalem. Protected from what? Well, in verse 6, it's the nations. And so we've moved from God as refuge from nature to God as refuge from the nations. But Jerusalem is only the protected city because God is in the midst of her. He is with the inhabitants of this city for their good. Jerusalem is not a magical city. It doesn't have some sort of supernatural force shield. It's a protected city because of God's special presence with its people for their good, which implies a relationship. He's with his people for their good. In Jeremiah's day, the people thought that they would be safe in the city of Jerusalem, even though they had rejected God and grievously sinned against him, committing abominable deeds, worshiping other gods. So Jeremiah tells them in Jeremiah 7, 4, do not trust in these words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Apparently, this was some sort of incantation that was being used. They thought it would bring them a protection, like a lucky rabbit's foot or something like that. 
And if they said this incantation three times, they would be secure. And maybe they got the idea of the security of the city from passages like Psalm 48, 8, where it says that God will make Jerusalem secure forever. And they misinterpreted what was really going on there and the idea of what Jerusalem was and what its significance was. And so the Jews in Jeremiah's day, they didn't think it was possible that an enemy could take that city. You see, it was God's protected city. Jeremiah tried to help them see that there was nothing special about that city per se, but only in God's special presence with his people for their good, which was dependent upon the covenantal relationship. The problem for them then was that God had already left the city. He wasn't with them for their good because of their disobedience, as we learn in the first part of the book of Ezekiel. So when the city was finally overtaken, their misplaced faith was absolutely shattered. They were not God's people. He was not with them for their good. But here in our text, the assumption is that those dwelling in the, in the city are God's people. For these people then, verse 6 explains, the nation's rage literally roar as compared to the waves roaring in verse 3 which also reminds us of the futility of, of the nations, of God's enemies to oppose God's Messiah that we learn about in Psalm 2.2, and I think connecting this to the Messianic Psalms. The kingdoms totter or shake, not fall, but threaten, and he, God's, God, utters his voice, and the earth melts. In Exodus 15.15 we read, now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, all the inhabitants of Canaan, right? God's enemies have melted away. And we see this theme throughout the Old Testament. Oftentimes in the Old Testament in particular, it's God's enemies who melt. Here we see that it's the earth that is melting, but in context, it seems to be talking about how it's the enemies of God on earth that melt in fear. The nations rage against God's people, but they are safe with God. All God needs to do is, is say a word. After all, he's the one who merely spoke, let there be light, and there was light. And this uttering of his voice is simply revelation of God's desires. God's will. All God needs to do is simply desire to want, to will the protection of his people and their enemies will melt. The threat, whatever the threat, will simply disappear. The Lord of hosts, the King of kings, the one who has an army of angels at his beck and call, the owner of all things, the creator of all things, is with us for our good. That is, he is for us always for our good. And his desire is the protection of his people. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And here again, this limits the protection to God's people. And again, we see this subtle evangelistic flavor here. God is the God of Jacob. He's a fortress to his covenantal people. He's not with all in this special way for their good. He's not with Israel's enemies. He's not for them. He's for his people. 
for their good. He's for those who hope in God's promises. He's for the redeemed. Hope in God. Embrace his Messiah. Be his people. So to them, those who embrace the promises of God, to us, to the redeemed, he is our fortress. He is our strong tower. We are safe and secure from all possible enemies. In 2 Kings 18 and 19, we read the story of Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, who sent a threatening message to King Hezekiah. And King Hezekiah took that message and physically unrolled the scroll before the Lord. I love that word picture in my mind. And that night, God sent an angel to the camp of the Assyrians and killed 185,000 enemy soldiers. The nations and their threats against God's people are nothing to fear. God is with his people for their good. But again, the ultimate end here is not physical protection from enemies. Hezekiah eventually died. And and Jeremiah, who is God's faithful prophet, uh, we know he was exiled, basically, to Egypt and so died in a pagan country. Physical protection from enemies is not the fullest application here. Our text is saying that that nations and their threats against God's people are, are no cause for concern. Our strong confidence is in God, who is with us always for our good. And so the Apostle Paul, I believe, essentially was merely commenting on Psalm 46 and Old Testament truths like this when he said in Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Psalm wasn't, uh, Paul wasn't introducing a, a, a new truth. He was applying it for us in a different way. Same truth. If God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer to that rhetorical question is obviously no one. That's the idea here. If you're God's people, if, if the creator God is with you for your good, then you don't need to fear any man or nation or king or ruler. If God is for you for your good, then the threats of Nero or Isis or, or whoever it may be do not shake God's people. He will work all things for their good. And so Paul, on the other side of Christ's advent, he clearly saw a connection here to redemption and new creation. He understood that's what this psalm was talking about. And so he continues in Romans 8.32 and says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? We don't need to fear a nuclear war with China. We don't need to to fear the loss of resources if we become a nation without borders. For to us, to die is gain. For to us, to depart and to be with Christ is far better. That's reality. If God is for us, for our good, who can be against us? Ed Welch wrote a book entitled, When People Are Big and God is Small. And the title really says it all. The book talks about how people sinfully fear man. They make people big and God's small. But the reality is that that God is big and people are small. 
We should care more about what he thinks of us than what others think of us. As Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That is, fear God, not man. What can man do to us? When God is our refuge and strength, we're not going to seek refuge in political victories. We won't be anxious about what people might do to us. We'll trust our fate among the nations to his sovereign and loving hand. And then last, we learn here that God is our refuge and strength because he rules over all, and so we should rest in his eternal presence and hope in Christ's exaltation and his second coming. Verses 8 through 11. God is in control of nature and nations, and now we see the two combined. In the midst of trouble from either sphere, nature or nations, everything in between, the charge is to come, behold the works of God. This same sentiment is spoken of in various different places throughout Scripture, like in Psalm 66.5, where the psalmist says, come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. And here those deeds are cataloged for God's people. Look at how he rules over nature. Look at how he rules over the nations. See, consider how he has brought desolation on the earth. Look at his power over the earth. Remember creation. How he spoke all things into existence. Remember the great flood, how at a word the great deep burst forth and the heavens emptied and the waters increased on the earth for 150 days. Simply at his word. Or even more intimate for Israel, look at how God rescued his people through the Red Sea and delivered them from the hands of Pharaoh. God's power over nature is breathtaking. And then think on this, he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. Nations rise up against nation, but their plans never succeed. Look at all the nations that oppose Moses and Joshua. None of them could resist. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariot with fire. Wars are fought or won at his command. The race is not to the swift. The battle belongs to the Lord. Know this. Remember this. Therefore, be still and know that I am God. In Exodus 14, 13, there's a similar command. The situation is the Exodus event. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. See, I believe the psalmists were looking at the Exodus event, seeing that redemption, that rescue, and understanding that that's how God works in their lives at the present, and understanding how there would be a greater redemption coming in the future in the messianic hope. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. 
See, God's people are, are to behold his works and be still and know that he alone is God. He will fight for them. He is with them for their good. Whether the foe is nature or nation or anything in between, God is their refuge and strength. He is their help and he is near. He is with them for their good. Nothing can happen to them. Nothing can happen to them apart from his say-so. And so they are completely untouchable. And so in light of this information, the charge here is to recall his deeds, to behold his works and be still. This is not a call to live a contemplative life. This is not encouragement for those among us who have these monkish tendencies. The command here is more along the lines of, of putting an end to a state or an activity. The idea is more along the lines of cease and desist. Stop your, your fretting. When we're in trouble from nature or nation, everything in between, when we're in trouble because of coronaviruses and all that comes with that, our need, first and foremost, above all else, is to stop in those moments and behold the deeds of our God. To know He is our God. He is the Creator God. He is the all-powerful God, the all-knowing God, the eternal, everlasting God, the only independent being who needs no one or thing, the redeeming God. If this God is for us, for our good, then who or what can be against us? If God has promised to be with his people always for their good, then fear of nature or nations and everything in between is out of place. If God has chosen us in him before the foundations of the world, if he sent his only son to die in our place to take our sin penalty upon himself, if he did this for us, then what we need more than anything when we're in dire straits and, and facing an evil and ominous foe, whatever it is, what we need more, and, more than anything in those moments is to be still and know he is God. And so as Paul said in Romans 8, 38, I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is with us for our good, always. I find it interesting here that the root word for be still is the same Hebrew root for Sabbath or rest. This is not a call to laziness or to neglect our God-given responsibilities in these times, but, but a call to find our rest in him when we are in trouble. He can be trusted. This is our first duty. Before we do anything else. Brothers and sisters, let me just challenge you to stop and think here for a moment what your knee-jerk reaction is, what your habit is when you're faced with an ominous threat. Is your first tendency to run to your family, to check your bank account, to make sure it's full, uh, to get on the phone and check with your insurance agent to make sure that you're covered. Our first duty, our first need before we do anything else is to run to our God, our true refuge, 
Our first need is to remember who our God is, his person, and what he has done, his works, and what he will do, his promises. And so there is an eschatological flavor here to this psalm. There's this view towards the future end. In Psalm 2, 4, we learn of that day. He shall judge between the nations, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Ultimately, this is the peace that God will bring. In Christ, peace has come. But we also know peace is coming. It's an already not yet peace. And he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. Our God, our refuge and strength, the one who is with his people for their good, our ever-present help, the one who is near, the one who is for us, always for our good, he will see to it. He will see to it. Ultimately, all of God's enemies will be placed under Christ's feet in real time. Hallelujah. And so ultimately, our hope is in gospel deliverance. Do you believe this? Ultimately, our hope is in Christ's person and work. Ultimately, our hope is in Christ's second coming. His first coming was a foretaste of great things to come as we see people healed of, of every disease and the waves and the storms calmed at his word. And we know and understand that this was simply a sampling of what will happen in the future in and through Jesus Christ. He is the king of all kings. He is a long-awaited Messiah, truly. And he will be exalted among the nations, among the pagans, those who reject Yahweh, those who reject the Messiah. He will be exalted in the earth. Isaiah 2.11 says that the haughty looks of man shall be brought low in that day, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. This is the reality Philippians 2 speaks of in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Every knee will fall before and give up their homage. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ is master to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, we need this big view of God and we need not only to confess it, but to truly believe it. This needs not only to be our confessional theology, but also our praxology. When God is our refuge and strength, we're not going to place much stock in money or in things or in health, wealth, or prosperity. God alone will be our refuge and strength. When God is our refuge and strength, then we're going to be free of the fear that keeps us from evangelizing the lost and loving the saints and being about kingdom work here and around the world. When God is our refuge and strength, we're going to live out the reality of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6. We're not going to be anxious about our lives, what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, what we're going to wear. You see, the Gentiles, pagans, those who don't have God as their father, those who don't know him, those who don't have him as their refuge and strength, they seek after these things. 
That's what their hearts are consumed with. They run to these things for refuge. But not you. You're God's people. You are to be still and know he is God. You don't have to be afraid or anxious about these things. You don't have to be consumed with these concerns and worries. You are to be consumed with something else. You are to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. You're to worship him. You're to be consumed with kingdom work. And we can't be consumed with kingdom work when our hearts are consumed with fear. John Piper wrote, perhaps the first response of the heart at seeing the majestic holiness of God is stunned silence. Be still, know that I'm God. Habakkuk 2.20 says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Piper goes on to say, in the silence rises a sense of awe and reverence and wonder at the sheer magnitude of God. Psalm 33.8 says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Brothers and sisters, are you in trouble with people? Do you have enemies that are threatening you? Are you fearful about your future? Are you concerned about your circumstances? Are you worried that the the world has gone mad and is out of control? Are you troubled by the coronavirus and everything that comes along with that? Don't sin against the Lord and and say in your heart, the sky is falling. Don't wallow in self-pity. Don't despair into depression. Don't grieve the, the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, who dwells with you always for your good. Don't run to yourself, your own ingenuity or some other false refuge. Be still and know he is God. Consider who your God is. He's the God who is in control of nature. He's the God who is in control of nations. He's the one who is sovereign over all things to include the end of all things. And this one is our refuge. This one is our strength. This one is ever present in our worst case scenarios. This is reality. Brothers and sisters, this God is for you, for your good. And if this God is for you, no one or thing can be against you. This was Betsy Ten Boom's strong confidence. It was her praxology, not merely a confession of faith. It was her practical theology. She truly believed this. She understood that that God was with her and for her, for her good. And so he was with her and for her and for her good, even in a Nazi concentration camp. She beheld God's works for her in salvation. She knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that her God sent his own son and gave him up for her. Therefore, her situation, as devastating as it was and as difficult as it was, was not a mistake. He had her right where he wanted her for her good and for his glory. It wasn't a mistake. 
He was over the nations. The Nazi regime and all their evil and wickedness was completely, fully under his control. And so with this knowledge of God, right, knowing this, she could rest in his sovereign redemption and care. She didn't need to resort to hatred or angst over her situation. And because she wasn't consumed with worry and fear and these other things, she was free to seek first his kingdom. She was free to share Christ with anyone and everyone. And so that's what she did, even in that Nazi concentration camp, as she was dying. Brothers and sisters, let this text be an encouragement and a comfort to you. Don't doubt God's absolute sovereignty and control over this coronavirus. Don't fight his sovereignty over all things. God is for you. He is with you for your good. All you have to do is be still and know he is God. He will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us for our good. The God of our redemption, the one who chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world, He is our mighty fortress. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these words of comfort and encouragement. We thank you for this declaration of reality. Lord, strengthen us to own this zealously and passionately. Lord, we're desperate for your Spirit's help to have these truths be our praxology to your glory, to Christ's exaltation, for the good of those around us, for our lost neighbors and loved ones. Lord, we pray that, that they would come to know you in and through faith in Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross for their good, for your glory. So Lord, help us to be those who make the most of this situation. And Lord, we ask for this help from your spirit, that Christ might be exalted in and through us. And Lord, we know that this is clearly where our joy lies and where our comfort lies. Amen.